Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content director at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. In this episode, we are continuing our new series on a Christian view of war with James Jordan's thoughts on the nature of vengeance in the scriptures. Again, we do remind you to sign up for the Theopolis app. You can head to app.theopolisinstitute.com and use the code Theopolitan to get your first month free. There is already a bunch of free content on that app, but there's much, much more behind the paywall. So use that code Theopolitan to get your first month free. After you sign up at app.theopolisinstitute.com, you can download the app from your app store, log in, and then you're good to go. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing the nature of vengeance. And this morning we want to talk about two fundamental aspects of defensive warfare. To get us into this, I'd like to read again from Psalm 144, verses 1 to 4. Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. You see here that not only is war important in the Bible, but God actually is the one who trains warriors. My loving kindness and my fortress my stronghold, and my deliverer. God is praised here for his characteristics as the divine warrior. My shield and he in whom I take refuge who subdues my people under me, says David. O Lord, what is man that thou dost take knowledge of him, or the son of man that thou dost think of him? Man is like a mere breath, his days are like a passing shadow. These two verses point to the amazing privilege that we have being like a mere breath and a passing shadow because of sin, it's amazing that God would see fit to bestow upon us the privilege of training us to become warriors in his army. We saw last time that the saints sing aloud on their bed with a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. We saw last time that the saints delight to bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. This is the attitude of the saints in the Old Testament. There is absolutely nothing in the New Testament which indicates any change of attitude on our part when it comes to the privilege of standing in union with Christ as he executes judgments on the earth. Now, we explored that last time, what it means and some of the things it doesn't mean. Today, we want to go forward and talk about how God trains our fingers to fight and our hands to war. And we'll look at the Bible and what the Bible, particularly from beginning to end, says about this, because there are changes um, from the Old Covenant to the New and in various times and seasons. We saw last time that the Bible teaches us that humanity as a whole matures. Originally, God did not give the right to execute capital punishment and to shed blood to the human race. It wasn't till the fall that this it wasn't not till after the flood that this privilege was given. Until the flood, there was no right on the part of the righteous to exercise uh, this divine prerogative. Only God can take the life of the image of God. Man is free to take the life of animals, but not to take the life of God's own image. Only God can take the life of the image of God. And it's not till after the flood that God commits this right 
that he bestows this right and privilege upon man and says from now on, when man sheds man's blood, then by man uh, vengeance shall be taken. Having given human beings the right to exercise holy violence on his behalf, God worked with his children to train them in the proper exercise of it. Thus, as we read the Old Testament, we see God progressively relinquishing more and more of the reins to his maturing children, although always reserving final judgment to himself. The illustration of this that we always use in here is telling your children that they're not allowed to cross the street. When they're two or three years old, you may not cross the street. You may not get near the street. If you come within one foot of the street, we'll whip you. So, of course, the next thing your child does is goes out, stands on the curb, and does this. And, of course, you wear them out because you don't want them doing that when you're not looking and getting hit by a car. Because you love him, you thrash him. But then when they're four or five, you know, they're a little bit older and, and you might allow them a little bit more. And then when they get to be third or fourth grade, you say, well, okay, you train them, you know, look this way, look that way. If there's not a car in sight, you can cross the street. You and I as grown-ups know that, you know, even if there's a car, you know, on down the block a little bit, we still know how long it takes for us to get across the street. We might just go ahead and go. But you're... Second, third grader doesn't know that. So there are progressive removal of our taking absolute tight control. And we see this in the Old Testament as well. God struck the definitive blow against Egypt without human aid. Stand fast and watch the deliverance of the Lord. God did it all. They didn't do anything. The army was destroyed by the Red Sea. They didn't, the Israelites didn't have to fight any of the Egyptians. But... When it came to destroying Canaan, God enlisted Israel's help. He said, I'm going to give you the privilege of helping me out on this. Here, follow me. But God worked all kinds of miracles to make it possible. Knocked down the walls of Jericho. Sent bees and hornets in to uh, hound people out of the cities and into the countryside where it would be easier to kill them. Uh, we don't actually have a recorded instance of that, but that's what it says in the Bible that God would do, and he did. You, know, you can imagine... You know, people living in a town with walls all around, and all of a sudden there's just hornets and bees everywhere, and they're driven out of the security of those walls, and God's army can destroy them. By the time of David, however, we have far less direct divine guidance. Men are supposed to make their decisions based on wisdom. You see, as you get older and you get more experience, experience mixed with obedience leads to wisdom. Experience mixed with obedience leads to wisdom. You have to have the law, but you also have to have time. And as time moves along and you get more experience in terms of the law, it leads to wisdom. So by the time of Solomon, you have production of all this wisdom literature. Job, Ecclesiastes, Canticles, Proverbs. That's the time of wisdom. And by the time you have wisdom, you don't need miracles as much. Mature people don't need for God to be stepping in every two seconds to tell them what to do. They have wisdom. Now, with the coming of the new covenant, we are told that humanity, or the church, has come of age. By implication, we're not to expect our Heavenly Father to bail us out of every situation we get ourselves into. Galatians chapter 4 Verses 1 and following say, Now 
As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, even though he is the Lord of everything, that is, legally speaking. But he is under guardians and stewards until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage, that is, under tutelage, of the elementary things of the world, that is, the first principles. Nothing bad about them. It's just that they're the kinds of rules that you put on children, like don't cross the street. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under law, in order that he might redeem those who were under law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because your sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave and no longer a minor, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And then he says, why do you want to go back to weak and worthless elementary things? It's kind of stupid to have a grown-up man say, well, uh, my mom told me when I was three that I can't cross the street, and so I can't cross the street. No, you don't do that. That is one perspective, particularly on a lot of the ceremonies and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. With the coming of the New Testament, we are supposed to operate on wisdom. And this does not eliminate the reality of the miraculous. God still does miracles today, but it does show a general trend in biblical revelation. And it's a trend that we need to keep in mind when we consider the biblical teaching on war. We don't expect God to send armies of angels that men can see riding ten feet above the ground in front of us when we go out to fight the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. They invaded our country. If the Cubans, you know, if, if an army came up from Mexico of Latin American communists and invaded Texas and we went out to fight, we would not expect to look up and see flaming chariots right over our heads going in front of us. David did. We don't expect to. It's not because we don't have enough faith. It's because we're now grown up. We don't need as many special things. We know that they're there, but we don't really expect to see them there. Now, we come now to the two principles we want to talk about today. We may just get to one. Although God permitted his people to join with him in exterminating the Canaanites and the Malachites, God did not permit Israel to launch wars of aggression. This is seen in the law in that they were forbidden to have horses. Horses were only used as wars of aggression. If you stop and think about it, there's no way you can use horses in defensive warfare unless you have to fight an army that comes in. But horses are used to go out and fight somebody. Defensive warfare is you have walls. Build a big wall around your city, have a lot of arrows stored up, have some traps laid in the ground, have a well-armed militia. Everybody has his own sword. But you don't need horses and chariots. Those are only used for aggression, and they were forbidden to have them. That's why it's a sin when Solomon starts collecting horses. That's part of Solomon's fault. Thus, there's a distinction to be drawn between God's special holy wars, which were aggressive, like destroy the Canaanites and the Amalekites, on the one hand, and the general defensive actions that Israel had to take from time to time. If we examine the rules for defensive warfare, 
we can come up with biblical principles for just war. Historically, the Christian church has said there is such a thing as a just war. Now we will be concerned from here on with what is a just war. Was the war in Vietnam a just war? To start with, then, just war is a defensive war, an application of what God told Noah, whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Wherever possible, aggression is to be met with resistance, and bloodshed is to be avenged. God has committed this charge to his people, and we are obliged to carry it out, although always according to the rules that he has set down. Now, there are two fundamental aspects of defensive warfare. One is vengeance. The other is the right of self-defense. We're going to talk about vengeance. We have a right to avenge wrongs. Genesis 9, which we just read, but now we'll read again, verses 5 and 6. Surely I will require the blood of your lives. This is what God says to Noah when he gives him the grant of exercising capital punishment and warfare. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every, the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Okay? We are supposed to avenge bloodshed. It's not actually an option in the law. Now, in the Old Covenant, this was enforced by the land. This will be very strange because in the New Covenant this is not true anymore. And we don't think this way anymore. But if you look back at Genesis 4, <clears throat> God says to Cain, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Oh, well, that's, uh, that's a figure of speech. Without even thinking about it, we automatically remove this from the possibility of saying anything real, and it becomes a figure of speech. Well, I don't know that blood really has a voice to cry out necessarily, but before we just dismiss this and turn it into a symbol or a figure of speech in our modern sense of what symbolism is, let's read on. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold... Thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I will be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And it shall come about that whoever finds me will kill me. How does he know that? There are some missing links in the argument here, which they understood, but we don't. We have to fill them in. 
So the Lord said to them, to him, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. We don't know what the mark is. We're not supposed to know, or he would be told. He didn't turn his skin black or any of the other nonsense that comes up from time to time. Probably on analogy of the rest of the Bible, there would have, might have been a mark on his forehead. That would be the safest guess. But since we don't know, we don't know. Look at what it says here. Now, just imagine. Now, you've never read the Bible before. And you're an ancient person in the ancient world. And the only Bible you have is Genesis 3 through 4 because that was the first Bible before Abraham, before Noah wrote the next section of it, and before Abraham added his part, and Jacob added his part, and Joseph his part, and then Moses added his part and reorganized it all. All we have is the part that Adam has written. God wrote the first part in Adam. That's what we would suppose. Adam wasn't, you know, a primitive barbarian roaming around, you know, who couldn't read and write. He obviously could write. Everybody has always known how to write. There never was a time when people didn't know how to write. God writes, and so man, the image of God writes from day one. It's nonsense to think people ever didn't write. Shall I say any more on that? No. Okay. Just eliminate evolutionary rubbish that you were taught in high school. People have always known how to write. He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Remember? Now, let's just put away the 20th century and read this like you've never heard it before. The ground, the blood is crying out of the ground, and now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to drink your brother's blood from, from your hand. So the ground has received brother's blood, and it has a mouth that opens up. And when you cultivate the ground, the ground will no longer yield its strength to you, and you will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. What image now comes to your mind about the ground, Dave? Is the ground uh, an inanimate machine-like thing in this passage, or do you get the impression that the ground is what? Alive, and it's a face. Yes, it drinks blood, or it received it. And it just goes on. Cain says, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground. Ground begins to sound like a big animal with a face. It has a mind of its own. It's not going to yield any more strength to you. The ground is mad at you. Well, that's the way... All right, it's a figure of speech, but that's the figure. Let's at least understand the figure. Now, why? Why, why, does it write, why is it written this way? Well, it is explained in verse 14. It says, Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from thy face I will be hidden. Does that mean that the face of the ground and God's face are the same so that God and the world are the same? Is that the philosophy here, what we call pantheism, that the world is God and God is the world? So, let's understand pantheism. Pantheism says that God is the world and the world is God. And if you go out there and you, you kick against the pricks of natural law, 
the natural law is not going to cooperate with you. If you plant your seeds, well, I don't know anything about agriculture, but let's just assume that, you know, if, if you expect to harvest crops in the middle of January in Illinois, northern Illinois, you're not going to get any crops. So maybe mushrooms or something that grows inside, but not anything outside because it's all under snow and ice. There, there are certain rules in nature. If you go against those rules, if you plant at the wrong time, if you refuse to water and irrigate your, your soil, if you refuse to feed your cows, if you refuse to milk them every day, the milk will dry up. If you refuse to cooperate with the natural laws of things, then the universe will set its face against you. Is that what's being said here? The face of the ground is the same thing as the face of God. And if you go against the ground, you go against God. And if you go against God, you go against the ground. You, you break natural law, and the consequences are you die. That's what pantheism and paganism teach. It's not what the Bible teaches. So we'll dismiss that one, okay? We can kind of know right off the bat that that's not a perspective here. But is the perspective deistic then? So we were all raised deist. I don't care if you were raised Presbyterian, Baptist, Pentecostal, or what. You were raised a deist in your worldview. Deism says, well, God is out there, and God occasionally does things, but basically the universe is a machine. The machine just runs itself, and uh, it's like a computer. You plug in information, and you get information back. Just put something in, get something back. Plant at a certain time of the year, you can automatically, everything is going to take care of itself. God made the world, he wound it up like a clock, he stuck some natural laws in it, and every now and then God comes along and interferes in something we call a miracle, but basically the world runs itself. You and I were taught that in the churches we went to. Every now and then we have the Lord's Supper, every now and then we have something special, Basically, everything just kind of runs itself. Except when we have a miracle! That's completely different from everything else. Is that the perspective here? Well, if it was, I don't think we'd have all this stuff about the ground. Just say, well, Cain would say, well, you're mad at me, okay? But the ground, I mean, that's not going to influence the soil or anything. That's not the perspective of the Bible either. It's hard for us to say exactly what that perspective is. But we can sort of come to grips with it here. What the Bible teaches us is that God made the world, and the world responds to God. And when God is mad, the world is mad at us. And when God is furious at humanity, then the world is furious at humanity and doesn't yield its crops or anything else. And so it's not that God's face is the same as the face of the ground, but it's not true either that the ground has no face. The ground has a face. It may not be a person, but it has a face. It has an appearance. It has a surface. It can be hard, pliable. It has a face. And the face of the ground reflects 
the face of God. That is a biblical perspective. It images it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God put the sky in the earth, and he called the sky heaven. So there's the highest heaven, and then there's an image of the heaven in the earth itself, which is the blue sky. And God made man to be his special image. So man images God. But everything images God, and the ground images God. And when God's face is hard against humanity, then the face of the sky becomes like brass, and the face of the ground becomes like iron. And when God is furious and spits humanity out of the Garden of Eden, or in Revelation 3 it says, since you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my church because you disgust me, when God is mad and God spits us out, then the ground spits us out too. You stick your shovel in and it spits it out. You plant seeds in and the ground spits them out. Think that way because that's the way the Bible thinks. See it that way because that's the way the Bible sees it. When God is mad, the ground is mad. When God's face is hard, the face of the ground is hard. And God had said, cursed is the ground because of you. It's going to bring up thorns and thistles, which will remind you that I am mad at you. And you're going to have to work real hard to get the ground to cooperate. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread. You will get to eat bread. But it's going to cost you. Till you return to the ground from which you were taken. But now, for Cain, it's even worse. It says that the ground has drunk Abel's blood and is crying to him. The ground is mad. Man was made of the earth, and to kill man is to attack and kill the earth. Think about that for a minute. Man was made of the earth, says Genesis chapter 2. Remember, the context of Genesis 4 is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Not Nehemiah, Zephaniah, Haggai or Malachi. Not, we can turn to those to find some help. The context is the earlier chapters. It says that man was made of ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and man became a living being. Man is made of ground. Dust thou art, and to dust you shall return. Now, if you attack a man, you kill a man, you're also attacking the ground and killing the ground. The earth is like the mother, and God is like the father. All religions in the world talk that way, and guess what? The Bible talks that way, too. You attack a child, and you answer to mom. Okay? You attack the child, and mother is angry. That's another perspective here. Now, remember, in a sense, these are figures of speech because the ground, the soil, is not itself a living, personal thing as we think of it. But we better, adopt, we better you know, understand what's being said here. Ground images God, and the ground is mad, and the ground has been attacked. Man is made of earth. When you attack man, you attack the earth. And the ground is going to spit him off. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened 
its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. In fact, you won't be able to settle down anywhere. As soon as you settle down, the ground will spit you off. So you'll become a vagrant and a wanderer in the earth. You move here, the ground will not cooperate. All of a sudden, the crops won't go right, and you'll be spat out. You'll have to move from here to there. A man who has no destination, a pilgrim wanders, but he has a destination. A wanderer has no destination. You'll never be able to settle down. You'll move from place to place. And Cain said to the Lord, this is too much. I feel so sorry for myself. My punishment's too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground. In other words, Cain understood the truth that the ground simply imaged the judgment of God. And it was really God who was passing judgment. Thou hast driven me from the face of the ground, and from thy face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. And the Lord said, well, how do you know that? Where did you come up with that idea, Cain? No, uh uh-uh. God says, that's right. That is the principle. So, uh, I'll put a special mark on you. Whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, because God has not yet committed the right to exercise blood vengeance and capital punishment to man, so it would be illegitimate for anybody to do it. But Cain says, the tendency will be for people to kill me. Why? Because man is made of earth. And when you defile the earth, the earth calls up men to avenge herself. That is what the Old Testament says repeatedly. The earth calls up an avenger of blood. And the ground sends that avenger of blood to kill the manslayer. And Cain logically deduces that from Genesis 2 and 3. Man is made of earth. When I killed Adam, I attacked the earth. The earth is mad, and now the earth will call up another piece of dirt, another human being, to kill me. If you don't think that way, you don't think in the Bible category. So let's go over it again. Man is made of earth. When you kill me, you're attacking the earth. The earth is mad. And the earth calls up another human being made of earth to take revenge. Now that's what Numbers 35, verses 29 to 34 says. Later on, when God set up the the nation of Israel, he used these principles and he fleshed them all out into a whole system. We're only going to have time to talk about vengeance today, but that's okay. We can learn to think this way. We'll see the world more properly. Numbers 35, starting in verse 29. These things shall be for a statutory ordinance to you throughout your generations and all your dwellings. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. No person shall be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Moreover, you shall not take a ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall most certainly be put to death. In Hebrew it says, being put to death, he shall be put to death. 
you double the verb, you create a testimony of two witnesses, it means that there's no possibility of negotiating. You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to the city of refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are, for blood pollutes or defiles the land. And no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. And you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. Okay? God is in the land, and the land images God to the people. And if you defile the land by bloodshed that's not taken care of one way or another, then the land will not yield its strength to you. It won't yield crops. You'll starve. It'll turn to iron. It'll just break your plows when you try to plow it. Now, because this is so important, you can think of various situations. Suppose, for instance, that you and I are out in the woods chopping down a tree, and uh, Dave Chilton and I are, and the axe flies off of my the head flies off of my axe, twists through the air, and lands on Dave and chops his head off. Well, I didn't mean to kill him, but blood has been shed. And as far as the ground is concerned, the ground is mad. And the whole land is going to be cursed. There's not going to be any crops in the whole land of Israel because of this. And the ground says... The ground sends out a signal to Dave's brother in California and says, Hey, you're made of dirt. It's your job to avenge me. And so Dave's brother gets on a plane and he heads to Tyler to kill me. Because blood cannot be expiated except by the blood of him who shed it. So what I've got to do is I've got to hot foot it to a city of refuge, which is right here, where the altar is. And I can lay hold of the horn. See this horn on his altar here? I lay hold of this horn. Not much of a horn. And uh, I'm safe. And uh, I go to my defense attorneys. And my defense attorneys are the Levites. Dave's brother is a prosecuting attorney. Now you know where our system of justice comes from, by the way. It comes right out of the Bible. Defense attorneys, prosecuting attorneys. It comes right out of this system. And I tell these Levites, you know, I'm innocent and I didn't really mean to kill him. And they say, okay, well, they have a hearing. Dave's brother has his say. Other people in the town have their say. Levites have their say and they pass judgment. They say, you can live in the city of refuge. And the, gr the ground is satisfied with that because I'm no longer living in the land. I'm in a different place. I'm in holy ground inside the walls of the city of refuge, which is kind of like heavenly territory. It's not part of the ground at all. But I can't ever leave. One day I get tired of living in the city of refuge. And I go out through the wall, and I set foot on the ground, and a red light goes off in Dave's brother's house in California. The ground telegraphs to Dave's brother, this clown is back in the land and he's got to be killed. Dave's brother hops on the plane. He comes out of the city of refuge and starts looking for me to kill me. He has to. He doesn't have an option about it. We might be good buddies. The Bible says he has to do it. He is called by God, and he must exercise vengeance. If I set foot outside the city of refuge, 
He has to come and try to kill me. So I get back in the city of refuge, and he goes back to California. Well, what's, how can I ever get out of the city of refuge? Somebody has to die. The ground will not be satisfied until somebody's blood is shed to atone. Well, we're told, he will remain in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. When the high priest dies, that takes care of it for me. And when Jesus Christ died, that took care of it for all of us. When the high priest dies, I get to go into the land. Oh, there are loads of applications of this in the Bible. When God called Israel to go into the promised land in the book of Numbers, they refused to do so, you may remember, and they had to wander for 40 years. You know how long they had to wander? Until the death of Aaron. And the very next thing that happens, it says they buried Aaron. It's in Numbers. I'll just point this out to you. Numbers chapter 20. Last verse, when all the congregation saw that Aaron had died, all the house of Israel wept for Aaron thirty days. Very next verse, when the Canaanite king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard Israel was coming, he fought against Israel, and Israel made a vow, and the Lord heard the voice, and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them. As soon as the high priest is dead, start moving into the land. Until the high priest dies, you're stuck in the wilderness. Well, that's one case. Let's take another case. Dave and I have a fight, and I murder him. Of course, I've got this planned out. You know, I murder him, and before the land can telegraph any signals to Dave's brother in California, I'm safe in the city of refuge. And I'm not just satisfied with the city of refuge. I mean, I go lay hold on this symbolic altar. No sacrifices are ever put on it. It's just like this one. It's symbolic, and I lay hold on it. Levites come in, and they say, We hear you murdered Dave. Oh, no, it was an accident. Oh, we have a trial, and all the proof is there, and it's proved that I murder him, and I'm holding on to the horns of the altar. The big, tough Levites come, and they drag me off and take me outside the city, and Dave's brother gets to kill me, and he delights to bathe his feet in my blood, and the ground is satisfied. You will take him even from my altar if he's worthy of death, says the Bible. Well, let's take another case. You know, ground, the ground can get angry over any number of different things as long as blood is shed. You and I are out in the woods one day and we come across a corpse out in the woods. Nobody knows who this person is. Nobody knows who killed him or why or how. What do you do? Well, it's no one's fault, so we don't need to have a trial. We don't need to do anything. Not at all. The ground is mad. The ground is going to turn to iron. It's going to curse the whole land. So what do you do? Got a whole law for that, folks, in Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21, if a slain person is found lying in the open country in the land, land which the Lord your God gives you to possess it, and it's not known who struck him, then your elders and your judges shall go out and measure the distance to the cities which are around the slain one. And it shall be that the city, that would be a place that has a wall around it, not just a group of houses. It shall be that the city which is nearest to the slain man, that is, the elders of that city, shall take a heifer of the herd which has not been worked and which is not yet pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to the valley with running water, which has not been plowed or sown, and break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near, for the name of your God is chosen 
For the Lord your God has chosen them to serve him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And every dispute and every assault shall be settled by them. Interesting. And all the elders of the city which is nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it. Forgive thy people Israel whom thou hast redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of thy people Israel. And the blood guiltiness shall be forgiven them. So you shall remove the guilt of innocent blood from your midst when you do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. It is real important to get this taken care of, you see. Otherwise, your crops would fail. The land would be mad. This time it's the blood of a heifer which purifies. This connects to Numbers chapter 19 where purification is the ashes of a red heifer. Here, the same kind of heifer is used not for ashes but for blood. But, again, it substitutes and makes possible the land. It makes it possible for the land to cooperate with human beings once again. Now, the problem with all this is, as you know, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So none of this ever really worked. The only reason that the ground ever cooperated with people in the Old Testament was by anticipation of the death of Jesus Christ. His blood covers. And because of that, then the ground can cooperate with men once again. Well, what about now? When Jesus Christ died on the cross, that was it. There's no more animal sacrifices, no more heifers. We find a corpse out in the city, out in the country. We don't, uh, we have no business killing a heifer. And the ground has been cleansed once and for all. And even if new blood is shed on it, you know, killing somebody else is not going to satisfy the ground. The ground has been satisfied once and for all in Jesus Christ. I think that what we have to say is, that before the cross, and this I am not absolutely positive how to work it out, but before the cross, the ground imaged the anger, imaged the face of God to man in this way. And the ground would not be satisfied unless blood was shed. After the cross, that's not exactly true anymore. There's still a general sense in which when God is angry, he withholds blessings from us. But the specific sense that we have in Genesis chapter 4 and in all these laws where blood pollutes the ground is not there anymore. At least it's not applied in the same way. It's still the case that murder has to be avenged by capital punishment. But some of these other more ceremonial type things that we've been thinking about, we don't take care of the same way. I suggest to you that the land is cleansed when baptism and the Lord's Supper are set up in a given place. And that it's the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Jesus Christ, when it's applied week by week in a given place, it covers for all of these circumstances except for murder. 
It's no longer the case that the next of kin is supposed to take revenge. The ground no longer calls up Dave's brother. If I, if actually, if Dave and I were out in the woods, Dave's brother has no business coming and trying to kill me. Because Romans chapter 12 says, Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will pay back, says the Lord. But it goes on to say, let every person be in subjection to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. For he is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. In the Old Covenant, then, and if we can't come up with a theological rationale for it, at least we know what to do. In the Old Covenant, God committed vengeance to the ground, and the ground called up the next of kin. In the New Covenant, God commits vengeance to the state. And I think the reason, and we've got to just stop here, I think the reason is, again, the maturation of the human race. In the Old Testament, God himself directly appointed somebody to act as blood avenger. In the New Testament, God does not directly appoint somebody. See, in the Old Testament, Dave's brother had to do it. We all knew it was him. It's his job. He tracked me down. That was it. If he didn't do it, he was in sin. In the New Covenant, God doesn't appoint anybody. He leaves it up to us. We decide on who the magistrates are, and we appoint avengers. We'll go back over this some next week, but we are out of town now. Let's stand for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, that his blood has atoned for all the blood shed upon the world. We thank you that we do not need to fear accidental manslaughter as your people of old did. We also thank you for the privilege that you've given to us of living in the new covenant, of having, of making our own decisions under you. We ask that you would give us wisdom to do these things and not to falter in the calling that you've put before us. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.